the Hollywood Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. Hello there once again, it's Eamon Baker and introducing the Hollywell podcast and today's guest is Hazel Deeney. Hazel will be speaking about the trauma of being right beside, I mean right beside her husband Trevor when he was shot dead by members of the INLA in April 1998. She will also talk about rare in the family having lost her husband and the challenges, the economic challenges of of doing the very best that you can do for your family. So, Hazel, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. You've become a member of the Victim and Survivors Forum, which is part of the Victims Commission. How come you're, you're there? I'm not actually sure what's taken my day, the Victims Commission. I think a couple of things. In a previous role, I would have worked with the Victims Commission, with a with the Victims Commissioner, Judith Thompson, and a founder of somebody who had a very high regard and somebody who cared about people and had a lot of integrity. So I had a lot of faith and trust in the likes of Judith. And when I saw the call they see what people like to join I actually thought this is something I may look at because there's a lot of unspoken voices written from the past 40 years in Northern Ireland and I'm one of them and I've never ever ever been involved or spoke about this before Um, so I just thought maybe it's about time because you have to go through a healing process and maybe it's time now that for me to share my experience and maybe for people to learn and see what it's like for women in particular that is because I think women played a tremendous role in the conflict because they were left to pick up a lot of pieces and how to go on about their daily lives. On the 8th of April 1998 my husband Trevor Deeney worked in Transtech and he was working on a 4012 shift and I had went to pick him up from work at 12 and we were driving back home and I noticed that the lights, you know, a lot of the lampposts was out coming up around Coffin area but that sometimes that's not, wasn't an unusual thing. I remember thinking it was very dark up here but I put no more pass on it. So we lived in a cul-de-sac and we were the first house in the cul-de-sac. It was quite small, only 12 houses and I pulled in, I was driving into the driveway and Trevor was always somebody who was very house proud and he had put his foot up to unless his boots before he would go into the house because we just, it's funny how things stick out in your mind we just got the house tiled and everything that day and he hadn't sold he'd no sooner done unlisting his boot than he started to squeal and I couldn't work out what was going on and before I realised he started to shout I'm going to die. Two gunmen were in front of us before I knew what they think or what they expect. One was beside him at the passenger door and one was in the front of the one screen. And I remember they were dressed in black jackets and freckled masks and they started to shoot in the car window. 
for me your mind goes blank I just thought I'm gonna die Trevor grabbed me around the waist and his body slumped forward and why he did that I actually with the weight of him kind of went fell towards the driver's door and he actually would have saved my life in that way for a bullet went through my headrest I know I didn't know this at the time but it was only after when placed did the forensics they said it was millimeters from my head it was like firecrackers going around in a car it just seemed to go on for hours and hours although it was literally only minutes so I, you were scared to look up I, I, I couldn't look up and I remember it went all quiet and Trevor wasn't dead then and he still had his arms around my waist he had such a grip that I was able to get out of the car but he came across the car alongside of me by the grip that he had so I fell onto the driveway and he fell on top of me and he was literally lying on top of me and obviously Hazel he would be bleeding and mm -hmm. Uh, but you weren't thinking of anything, you didn't see anything because it was 12 o'clock at night and you know your mind was just completely blank so I remember lying underneath his weight and it, it just seemed like seconds and the next to look the gunman had reloaded their guns and was coming back around the side of the where we were lying in the car and I remember saying I'm gonna die and by Doing that, Trevor released this grip that he had and I was able to come out from underneath him and I ran down the side of the, our house and went behind the oil tank and I watched while they stood over his body and they shot and his body was like a fish that you bring out of water just that vibration of the impact of the bullets had on him uh, people say that you stand still with fear yeah that was how it was for me I couldn't have moved and if I could have I wouldn't have knew what I was going to do I thought then when they'd stopped you know what they're going to come for me now and the stupidest things goes through your head because I remember when I was running down the side of the house I had dropped my purse thinking I dropped my purse <laughs> didn't even know why that came under my head but it was one of them things so when deathly quiet and I still could not move and I was scared to move. Again, that was probably only minutes, but it seemed longer. I went over because we had patio doors out our back. And I went over and I remember going on my hands and knees out to the kitchen. And we had a phone on the wall in the kitchen and ringing 999. And I was still scared to go outside the front door because I didn't know were they there, had they not been there. And I wanted to go out the door because he was lying in our driveway. I just wanted to be there with him. I did go out, my kids was all in bed at the time and they hadn't heard, not that I knew of at that, at that time. So when I went out, I remember I went over and his eyes was flickering because he, he still wasn't dead and he was just lying there. I don't know why shock must have just hit and I ran up and down the street. Nobody came out but the man at the very bottom of the street. Did you run up and down the street squealing? Nothing was coming out of my mouth. I actually, it just must have been the way the shock had went. And when I had rang 999, I had rang down to my mother's house. And I had, you know, three brothers that loved at home at that time because they were all young. And they arrived, they came up to the house and the ambulance, they all seemed, they only lived down the street. 
of the ambulance and they came at the same time plus the man at the bottom of the street had come up he was the only person in the whole street that came out to help and he was taken away in an ambulance I still wasn't dead to this day I don't know how I got to the hospital I actually don't know did I go in somebody's car or did I go in another ambulance I really don't know and we went into the hospital and we were taken into this side room and the minister was called and then the doctor came out and said that he wasn't dead but it was an pulse struggle and that he had taken a heart attack. Eventually the doctor came out and said he was dead and they took me into the resuscitation room and I just remember he was lying in the bed and all these sheets was underneath him on the ground and the blood was just dripping. Something always stuck in my mind, this blood just dripping down from his hands or I don't know where it was all coming from, but it was just dripping onto the ground and the sheets were there to sort of catch it. And I just thought, I can't believe this has really happened. So the house was all cordoned off for forensics and I had to go my kids. I, I hadn't even thought of what was happening with them. So my brothers had went and took them down to my mum's. When we got home from the hospital, I remember leaving the hospital and the hospital handed me his wedding ring and his watch and his locker card or his clocking in card and it was the card was just saturated in blood went down home with my brothers because you know they I think it was with them again I, I, I genuinely don't know who I went with so when we got there then the police arrived and they wanted to talk to you and one thing I always remember is nobody in the hospital I suppose maybe they didn't realise that I was there but some way maybe I should have been treated for shock at some level whatever way he had been shot and the bullet had come out through it, the shell I remember actually the shell the bullet or I didn't know what it was but a thump in my hip and um, I actually at one stage in the car thought I'd been shot but it actually hadn't it was must have been whatever way the impact of the, the bullet thing had went but my hip was really bruised I, I, it, things just seemed to escalate from then. The, the, you know, the, the police had come round. They said we couldn't go home. They, you know, all the forensics had taken place. The funeral, you know, it just seems to, it just seemed to go in a, a haze. And the GP came to the house and gave you the diazepam, or that seems to be the answer to everything these days. And. Did you request that? No, I just came as a home visit because they'd heard about it and that had been my GP for a long time. However, I didn't really take them because I didn't want this to be his. I wanted to be part of what's going on, knowing what's going on. So the house was just packed for morning, noon and night. People from all sections of the community. I got hundreds, and I mean hundreds of cards from people that I never knew or had tell of throughout the whole of Northern Ireland. You know, saying even parishioners from churches and chapels, you know, saying that they were praying and signing these things and had three nuns and a priest come down from Oma. I know people were more than good. The funeral took place then and Trevor's brother got out of prison. Jeffrey? Yeah, they attend the, the funeral. And I remember the day he had media kind of trying to break in the middle of the, you know, the cassage to sort of say, which one's Jeffrey Dini? You know. Trying to break into the cortege. Uh -huh. yeah. That was seemed to be what their interest was. 
and that really was my life just changed that day I changed in a lot of ways I feel in some ways I lost my identity as I was no longer Hazel Dini I was wife of Trevor Dini people were drove up and down the street that's how things went that they actually see this is where it happened almost like grotesquely mm -hmm. uh... it was crazy some of the you know you had newspapers trying to ring your house knock at your door and I never spoke to any media yet in the newspapers they had a story or a quote or a source or allegedly yet nobody spoke to the no, none of the family spoke to the media at any time and so I don't know where they were getting their information you had politicians at the top of the street saying this is a terrible thing because he actually got Trevor actually got buried the day the Good Friday agreement was signed and that was a very poignant time so technically speaking he was the last person in the history of the conflict of Northern Ireland to be killed You said there that you turned down the di diazepam mm -hmm. uh, that the GP offered you well he gave it to you but you didn't take it mm -hmm. And you said earlier that you described a state of shock. Mm -hmm. Is it possible, Hazel, that you're still in that state of shock, given the horrific event that happened? I suffer from post-traumatic stress, but I've learned over the years to, to deal with that. I, I think the big thing about that is when the fuss all dies down, you've got the practicalities. That of four children, of four for example. Children. We had just bought a house the year before. And it was the first time we'd bought a house actually together and all that sort of stuff to deal with. And everybody, as much as they're very good and they empathise, people then be absorbed into their own... Their own you know, lives. Their own lives, which is just how Because I'd have been one of them people if it hadn't have been me. And people that were really, really supportive and, you know, couldn't have asked for better. And Trevor's brawler and, you know, my friend in particular were really supportive in terms of finance and everything else and just being there and I was scared to sleep in the house and even though you had your kids there on my own so my brother came and stayed for a while because I didn't want to because the police had actually put a patrol outside the house that stayed there over the whole period of the the week and I felt secure but once they after the funeral and they took away that presence I was kind of nervous because in my mind I thought are they going to come back and get me because do they think I know who they are my mind was a way to this I suppose it wasn't even rational some of the thinking but I remember that something stood out in my mind at the time of the the wake that a drunk man actually came under the house somebody came out to the kitchen to me and said you know come on do you think kind of who he was I never met him before in my life so I actually thought well, this is somebody that worked with Trevor he couldn't get any sense out of him so they asked him to leave and to this day I don't know who he was I don't even know was he in the right place or whatever but that made me anxious afterwards because yes. I thought was that something coming you know and I'm not saying it was or it wasn't I'm just that's just how I felt afterwards you know because you were maybe putting two and two together and making a hundred and two but I was frightened and I, I, I was frightened I, and to this day I don't like anybody walking up close behind me or anything I just have that it just makes me feel uncomfortable you said there just a moment ago about post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder it took quite a while to be diagnosed with that because I had worked before I trusted that particular time and I worked in a predominantly Republican town 
and I was quite anxious even going back to work at that particular time because your story and or what they perceived to be your story and your family background and everything else was all over the newspapers and I worked with the community district nurses at that time and when I was going into houses I was nervous going on because not that the people weren't nice to you going on it was just me how I was and because I still had this this sort of fear of you know what people want you in and they actually found the gun at Murder Trevor in Strabane and that's where I was working at that particular time. Because I was working with Foil Trust they linked me in to see a psychologist and I went for counselling for about six months and you know he was very very good but then they got me then and they see somebody and I had to go to Belfast to be assessed and diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and even them journeys up and down to Belfast were you know going through you sometimes you just felt you were reliving it constantly because in your mind it was like a computer the whole night or something would trigger or something that the process would go through your head but that was the issues that I was dealing with as a person and as an individual but I had four kids aging from 12 to 7 and for me life had to go on for them and what did that actually mean you know and I was brought up in a very average family and the conflict of Northern Ireland was something that was there but it never affected me nor at any level it never affected our lives this was a major shock to your system so I wanted my kids to make sure that you know that they were supported and my needs had to come behind that because you know they were at school and I had one son and three daughters and I wanted to make sure that my son wouldn't get angry or they wouldn't have been attracted to get involved in any they were revenge or people would have taken advantage of their vulnerability, you know, in regards to, oh, look what happened, come and join us, because that's never going to happen for me, for my kids, never. So you hit that side, you try to have a bit of normality, bring normality back, that their home was their safe haven. And then you had the financial aspect, and the financial aspect was horrendous. It was, I feel I was robbed of grieving. We had life insurance linked to an endowment policy, and the insurance company refused to pay out because they said that Trevor had been threatened and we hadn't informed him which actually wasn't accurate because at that particular time it was something he was very particular about and we had informed him and we were told that was that's fine that at one stage half of Northern Ireland would have threatened threatened or not nothing had changed and and the other side of that is you thought well it was never going to really happen it seemed to go on for quite a few weeks and in the in the meantime how was I managing for money because I got paid monthly, Trevor had got paid weekly and I remember even during the period of the week Trevor would have been paid a day or two I think after he died but our bank account, we had a joint bank account had been frozen so only out of people's generosity when people in Derry and take food and whatever else two weeks I actually don't know you know how I would have managed because I literally had no money because I couldn't, um, I actually remember somebody took me up to the bank machine to get money out because I was going to get my son a, a shirt and whatever to wear to the funeral and just says no I couldn't because the bank account because it was a joint bank mm-hmm. account so the bank swiftly so froze, account. froze your account and I had access to no money whatsoever you, you don't think it's only afterwards you think I mean how did they expect you to 
to manage. Trevor would have been due his salary out of Transtech at that particular time and Transtech refused to release his salary unless I went for it in person. Do you know why they refused to release his salary? I don't know, maybe it could have, I don't know. To cut a long story short, I went down to pick it up and they actually left his salary with the the security man at the front gate. Nobody even had the decency to come out. And I thought, no, even out of Curtis, good manners, whatever. But we'd been told afterwards that apparently there had been an unofficial threat that people were advised not to come to the house during the week. I don't know how true that is. That could have been just something somebody said. It's some material anyway. So I went, I had to go down and anyway, pick up his salary and they, had t- they took tax insurance and union dues out of a dead man's salary. But anyway, money then started to get extra tight. As I say, we had an endowment policy, so our mortgage continued. How was I going to manage? I went back to work six weeks after he was killed because I had no other way to manage. And I remember driving days to Strabane thinking, how did I get here? And I had to go back off. I took the shingles and you were still fighting this thing between the insurance company and and then you had an issue about the car because the car had only been new, about three weeks old. It was a brand new car. It was a Renault again and it was only literally out of the showroom. And at that time then the car had been taken away to Maidown for forensics because I mean a lot of the shooting had been done on the car. And the insurance company, or the finance company, wanted me to take the car back. And there was no way I could have gone and drove that car after that. I couldn't, I couldn't have done it. You know, site stereotyping companies in England, they don't get it. And in the interim of that, he had the local undertaker, who was very patient and very good, waiting to be paid. Because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't got the money. And you were thinking at this time, well, it shouldn't be too much longer now until you get your insurance. You shouldn't be. And it wasn't about the money, but I needed that to survive. Because how was I paying the mortgage? How was I paying the funeral bill? How was I buying the shopping? How was I buying my kids their clothes? How was I buying electricity? So the, what I'm hearing here is you are suffering the most horrific mm-hmm. shock. And at the same time, you have to function, mm-hmm. and you, you're very mindful of your four children are mm-hmm. between twelve and seven. So you had all of these emotions and all of these practicalities because which you were then putting mm-hmm. on hold, maybe or well, you were trying to say as as it came mm-hmm. on. So to me, I came last in the pecking order because you know they're my responsibility, and I remember phoning up the insurance company one time and sort of you know sort of saying, well, at what stage are we at now? And them saying, well, it's like somebody who buys a diamond necklace. I always remember this analogy that they give, and it goes missing. There will be an investigation. And I remember saying, are you implying that I had something to do with my husband's murder? Because that's what it sounded like to me. And they didn't actually answer or say, because that was just their ignorance for anything else. So I remember then they, they kind of said, well, do you know what? We ain't paying it. This was about a few weeks later politicians come on and saying well at the time of the week if you ever need anything or whatever so I remember one day I thought and I can honestly tell you I had not got the money even for a pint of milk or a loaf of bread that day and I thought what am I going to do and my family weren't my brothers were quite young my family weren't financially able to support me that way so I remember going down and the local 
what I go off with and saying, you know what, could somebody help me? You know, because surely if somebody kind of gets involved, I I'm not looking for anything other than what we paid into. They said, that's personal. We can't get involved in that. And if I was you, I'd go home and look at how you're going to raise your kids. And that was the response that I asked got. Or why don't you go and see your local MP? And I come out of there and I remember crying in the street thinking, I was made belittled. And I and because I, if I had wanted to make it a news story or had I been prepared to take it the media lens, they would have helped. But that's not me and that wasn't for me. And I wasn't interested in that. Like, I didn't want a day story just to be the Morris Chuck Pipper or somebody saying Hazel Dini's got no money to rear four kids and haven't paid out. No, it was action I needed. It wasn't a profile. I wasn't there to profile a politician. And it didn't matter what. I had nothing. I felt nobody to help. I was really lucky that, you know, Trevor's brother um, worked in Seagate at the time and he would have done a few extra shifts and would have come up and give me money. And I remember coming up to the Christmas when he died that my friend and her husband, his mum, gave them money for Christmas and they came up and gave it to me. And that's how I bought my Christmas dinner. I had nothing. And in the meantime, my overdraft was growing bigger and bigger. And to be fair to the bank, they were quite tolerant, but they were taking their pound of flesh because whilst you were they were adding on their charges so as much as you had an overdraft by the time that it was nearly half of that again by the time they put on their charges and at one stage I was nearly £10,000 overdrawn on the bank I had to actually remortgage and put Trevor's funeral costs onto my mortgage and I had to go and find a job and go back to, to work and as if this situation or whatever you know, it was just something that never happened. And I believe I was robbed of grieving. I believe this should have been. And that's probably one of the reasons why I joined the Victims Commission, because whilst we're not in a stage of conflict, there's a lot of people like me. And I'm not sure whether anybody sat in the same circumstances, but there's been a lot of unspoken and a, a lot of people's voices has never been heard about the practicalities of what it was like, the devastation. People always hear about the actual event, but how many people actually know about how the pieces are picked up again? How were the children? They, you know, I understand that you're functioning to support your children. You're doing your damnedest, you're doing your best, and it's such a devastation. Yet you're keeping your feet on the ground in one way and saying I, I must look after these young, these four, one boy, three girls. It's just very lucky I think that I had four good kids. I tried to keep a lot of that off then because I wasn't, no I was not robbing them of their, any more of their childhood that they needed to, you know, so they didn't need to know I was the parent. So it's my job to take care of them and keep them on the straight and narrow. Tell us so that the podcast listeners will know where those four children are now. Three of my daughters went to university. One of my daughters is a clinical nursing manager for quality with Bupa in England. I have another daughter who's got her own business in Bangor. I have a daughter who um, did a degree and is uh, now the financial controller for a building company done during their accountancy and my son's just back from Australia where 
He wasn't really into education, but he's never been out of work in, in the Bolton field. You're very proud of, mm-hmm. and proud of yourself mm-hmm. that you managed to be that loving parent that supported. That had to be both mother and father, to both of them. Yeah, already. All four of them. Mm-hmm. And for me, because I'm proud of the fact that the best job I did was to make them believe that people are good and bad, no matter what. And it's not. The last thing I'd have wanted was people to say, you know, my kids to grow up thinking, oh, this is about Protestant and Catholics, because that's not what it was. And that's, to this day, my best friends and close friends would be predominantly Catholic. And there's no way I was having my kids being brought up and robbed of maybe making friendships with people because of their religion. And in fact, you no, know, one of my daughters is married to Catholic, and my grand child's been brought up in the Catholic faith, and that's fine because as long as he's good to her and she's happy, that's what I care about. Mm-hmm. Doesn't religion is not the cause of the conflict, in my opinion, and I wasn't, I wasn't having that. You said right at the beginning of this time that you're now finding your voice. It's something to share about an experience because I think if we're all too quick sometimes they want to know of the ins and outs of the the incident, the incident or the event. And I, I think it's sometimes it's important to know about the impact that it causes in that on normal family life afterwards because how many people how many times have people went back and asked that well, how are you managing? And for me, there's an awful lot of things around the, the time they've done up. Oh, look, victims is for this, and there's funds set up for that, and things for here. I wouldn't have been aware of any of that. And if I had been, nobody ever came and said. So I, I literally was on my own in terms of any financial aid. For me, I think it's important that there's new, new strategies and plans that's out there now for the Victims Commission and the Victims commission service that you know they're looking at intervention and you know looking at you know things to what is it out there they're going to look to do needs assessment to see well what is the needs of some of the victims and for me it, it's and I'm not saying mental health is a major thing because it really is in terms of the help and support people could give but at that particular time did anybody ever go and see the financial aid that people made because it wouldn't have been a case for me that I would have had to give up my house it wouldn't have mattered for me at that time. The fact was that was our home. The fact was that was my kid's home. It wouldn't have bothered me going into a housing executive house. I was rearing one. The fact was, how much more were we going to give up? You know, for a move on top of everything else that happened, my kids, it, it just, it wasn't the thing. The Highwell Trust Podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. If you missed any of our testimony episodes, a special playlist featuring every episode to date can be found at soundcloud.com. Just search for Hollywell Trust and you will be able to stream or download every episode.
Otherwise, all our episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts and at Stitcher.com. I would like to take the time to thank the funders of this podcast, namely the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department for Foreign Affairs, Derry and Straban District Council and the Community Relations Council. Thank you all. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.